Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm very excited today to welcome best-selling author Rob Wolf, the author of The Paleo Solution, The Original Human Diet. And I got to tell you about him. First of all, this is a wonderful book. You should all pick it up and read it because not only do you get a synthesis of a lot of different information unique to The Paleo Solution, but also different aspects of health shared to you in both a serious and a humorous way that makes a lot of this digestible. Rob is a former research biochemist. He is also a student of the renowned Professor Lauren Cordain, the author of The Paleo Diet. Rob has functioned as a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism. He's also the co-founder of the Nutrition and Athletic Training Journal called The Performance Menu, co-owner of NorCal Strength and Conditioning, and one of the top 30 gyms in America. He's the co-owner of Paleo Brands, Inc., a paleo food company selling meals and snacks featuring grass-fed meat, wild-caught fish, and all organic ingredients. And he's also a former California State powerlifting champion and a 6-0 to zero amateur kickboxer. And he coaches not only athletes at the highest levels in their area and consults with Olympians and world champions in MMA, motocross, rowing, and triathlon, but he's also provided seminars in nutrition, strength and conditioning to entities such as NASA, the Naval Special Warfare, the Canadian Light Infantry, and the United States Marine Corps. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Rob Wolf to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. With an intro like that, I should be taller than five foot nine. <laughs> In my early tournament tennis days, we had this guy named Tommy Cook, who was this great announcer, and he did an intro when I was playing Tracy Austin, and I was known for my servant volley. He made such a big intro of me. I literally, Rob, opened with a serve that hit the side rim of the racket and went 100 feet out of the court. So there you go. I know that you won't do that this morning. <laughs> it's a delight to have you on the show. Thank you. Huge honor to be on the show. I've done so many interviews with so many people in the health and wellness industry from life extension to fitness and with Dr. Michael Colgan and people in all aspects of health and wellness, really that are quite advanced in their areas. And I really, really liked the candidness, how your book actually talks to us and talks with us and kind of cajoles us along through the scenarios of what we need to understand about paleo. I like that you also mentioned your teacher, Lord Cordain, and his huge contribution to your life, and that you quoted your sources. I like that. I think that's very integrous of you. I want you to talk a little bit about the agricultural revolution and how the agricultural revolution, I thought we should contextualize this, is missing as a part of one of the greatest events in history that was a game changer for food and us. Gosh, you know, it, it, it's kind of a fascinating story. If if you go to a, an anthropology department, and I mentioned this, I believe, in Chapter 2 of my book, uh, you know, if you wandered into an anthropology department anywhere, any university in the world, and you asked the professors of anthropology, these people who are experts on human origins and, and human history before history, before, you know, written, recorded, you know, documentation and whatnot, and you ask those folks, what, what, what were we like as hunter-gatherers with regards to health and longevity and infant mortality and, you know, height and, and uh, you know, all that sort of stuff? Uh, we were very, very healthy. We actually had a low infant mortality rate. Uh, uh, average lifespan wasn't very long due to injury and infection. But if folks lived, you know, past their 30s, they were as likely as, as we are today to live into advanced age and, and stuff like that. And then if you ask the question, well, what happened when we started living in, in cities and towns and domesticating uh, grains and legumes and, and uh, you know, herding animals and stuff like that? Like, what was the, the result with regards to our health? Shockingly, it was very, very bad for us. Infant mortality rates go through the roof, high rates of infection, all kinds of uh, uh, diseases of deficiency because we shifted from a very nutrient-rich diet based off of a, a wild game and fruits and, and vegetables and seasonal roots and tubers to a very um, monochromatic uh, dietary intake, you know, lots of either rice if you lived in the Orient or, or wheat derivatives if you lived in the, 
the Fertile Crescent or, or you know, Northern Europe, and it, it had very untoward effects on our our health and wellness. But th- this was a huge uh, transition, uh, with, you know, both culturally and, and physiologically and whatnot, and it barely gets even a, a hiccup in the, you know, uh, medical anthropology treatment. Uh, it, it gets far more... You know, if you go to some place like the Max Planck Institute of Evolutionary Biology in, in Leipzig, Germany, they, those folks are researching this stuff every day all the time, and they're quite well steeped in it. But the fact that this transition had so much significance for our health and for, for our species, it, it should be something that is just kind of, well, you know, every medical student should know about it. Every uh, registered dietitian should know about it, but hardly any of them do. And the ramifications of that lack of knowledge are, are being seen every single day with the, you know, our, our increasing healthcare costs and, and difficulties with uh, type 2 diabetes and obesity. You know, we keep beating this drum of uh, high-carb, low-fat, and uh, it, it doesn't really appear to be working very well. One of the things I really like throughout the book, too, is in one part of the book you say, you know what, you're really on your own now. We're on our own in the sense that a lot of what we've been taught and what has been the meme, quote, M-E-M-E, that has been projected, the many memes about health and wellness and what we should eat have been so wrong, in fact, have so violated our biology and, and physiology. You say we are gene wired for a life, but that's all but gone now. Talk to us a little bit about that piece. Well, this steps beyond simply the, the food part. You know, folks like to talk about diet a lot, and it's kind of a, a juicy topic for, for media and, and TV and everything. But when we, when I'm talking about this and when people in this kind of ancestral health evolutionary biology field are talking about the different parameters that go into our, our hunter-gatherer life way, we're talking about sleep, we're talking about exercise, we're talking about community uh, we know for a fact from, from epidemiological research that having adequate socialization, like having an extended family group and friends and support, that is important on one's health as, as a pack-a-day smoking habit is. So if, if you have any inadequate socialization, that is, you know, impactful on your health as, as a pack-a-day smoking habit. And this is all some of the growth and the extension of us developing as as hunter-gatherers over millions of years. And, and you know, we, we lived a very active lifestyle, and so now we're, we're very clear that uh, exercise plays a critical role in, in, you know, good body composition and preventing various types of cancers and preventing type 2 diabetes. Uh, sleep is a huge factor. The Centers for Disease Control now recognize sleep debt or shift work as a known carcinogen. Uh, you know, right up there with ionizing radiation and asbestos and smoking. And, and this is another piece of our ancestral legacy that uh, before the advent of, of, you know, electricity, basically, you know, when the sun went down, we largely went down. When the sun came up, we came up. You know, obviously, we've had uh, cooking fires for a, a couple million years at least. But when we look at the way that our life has shifted. We tend to get much less sleep, much less exercise, much more food that is is not very nutrient dense. So it tends to be, you know, denuded of vitamins and minerals and fiber and and stuff like that. And so it's this uh, this total package. We like to call it a template that encompasses more than just diet, but also the exercise and the sleep and the socialization. And when we when we think about our our health from that kind of integrated systems approach, it makes a lot more sense what we need to do to to fix the problems that we see. I liked that you also wrote extensively about sleep and literally lights out, no lights in the room, and early to bed, early to rise. Talk a little bit about is it the circadian rhythm or, or mm-hmm. why we have to refine that? It's even more important than just being able to fall asleep and to sleep a certain number of hours. But after reading what you wrote, I literally refined my bedroom even more and found I'm sleeping much better and longer. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. In, in our Western kind of puritanical culture, we, we regard sleep as a, 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 an annoyance at best. And, and it's something that, uh, tough people can power through. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something for the weak. It's something that you get caught up on when you're dead. And it, it's interesting. Uh, it, if 
you can feed somebody really poor food and kill them maybe in a, a couple of months, you know, either through deficiency or excess or, you know, however you wanted to look at it. Uh, obviously, folks can die pretty quickly from water lack. Uh, if you sleep deprive somebody, you can kill them in pretty quick order, like, a, you know, five, six, seven days of really uh, hardcore sleep deprivation can so derange the metabolic processes in the body that a, a person can literally die from the effect. And it, it, it's kind of hard to wrap our, our brain around, but all of these hormones that regulate our, our aging and our fertility, uh, melatonin and insulin and, and uh, serotonin and growth hormone, all of these hormones are very tightly regulated to the amount of light that we get exposed to throughout the day and then our ability to get into deep, restful sleep. And it, it's, uh, you know, if, if you look at a plant or you look at a hibernating bear or, or something like that, it totally makes sense that they are tied to the seasons. And when the days get longer, it, it changes the signaling that happens in the, you know, the hypothalamus and the, you know, the way the pineal gland releases growth hormone and stuff. But we assume that we are outside of biology, but we're really not. We're not outside of nature. Even though we are technologically advanced and we know a lot about nature, we, we are still a part of nature. And the way that we live now, instead of being a little bit more in sync with the days and the seasons, we, we, get it, we tend not to get enough bright, you know, uh, uh, full, full exposure sunlight during the day uh, because we're indoors, but then we don't get enough complete downtime at night because we have TVs and, and uh, computers and overhead lighting on. And so we're in this kind of weird purgatory gray land with, the, with regards to light. And what, what it does to is it, it elevates a stress hormone called cortisol. And cortisol is a really important player in insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. It, it's one of the, you know, uh, causative or confounding factors in insulin resistance. And so if we can get people to sleep well and to sleep in darker rooms and to get out, you know, during the bright part of the day, we tend to see their cortisol levels go down. We tend to see these folks get leaner. We tend to see their insulin levels go down. And this is very, very important for health and wellness. It was pretty shocking under the not sleeping era. You said it blocks fat loss. You get fat, sick, and diabetes from not sleeping. And you get older and you get wrinkles before your time. That's enough to shock people. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, all of the silly health and longevity stuff doesn't motivate people. I so know. if I tell them you're going to get fat, old, and wrinkled before your time, <laughs> and that kind of perks their ears up, and, and we, we have a motivated group of folks then. Now, you talk about the 30 days of trying this paleo diet solution. Let's contextualize for the audience. You were a former vegan. Right, right. Now, how long were you vegan? Probably about two and a half years. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing with that is, I, you know, I, I, uh, I was born 1972. I, I, I was uh, doing my undergrad in the early 90s. And this was right when the, uh, the, you know, the food pyramid came out. And so we shifted away from the four food groups to the food pyramid, I believe, in 1992. And it was pushing high-carb, low-fat, you know, lots more grains. And I, I came from a, a powerlifting background, and so I was, you know, a competitive powerlifter, weighed about 185 pounds, uh, could back squat almost 600 pounds, could stand flat-footed under a basketball hoop and jump and dunk a basketball, you know, with, with no run-up. And it, again, I'm only like five foot nine, so I was a pretty strong, pretty lean, muscular individual eating kind of a, a bodybuilder-type diet, you know, a lot of protein, a lot of carbs from like white rice and stuff like that. And then when this notion of a high-carb, low-fat started really gaining prominence and, and we started getting from both government and the media this push that, a, you know, vegetarianism or veganism might be good for us, just out of experimentation, I, I gave it a shot. And the interesting thing was that I was so intellectually wed to this idea that this should be healthy for me that even though I became very, very sick, I developed ulcerative colitis and high blood pressure and, and all kinds of problems. I just didn't, it, it was kind of a body dysmorphia kind of, kind of story, you know, like almost like anorexia or bulimia or something like that, where I just couldn't believe what was going wrong with me. And, and, you know, I was so sick. I, I at the age of about 26, my doctors wanted to do a, a bowel resection on me because I had ulcerative colitis so bad. 
And uh, uh, the only thing that they thought that was keeping me alive was my high-carb, low-fat, vegan diet. And in fact, what we discovered was that I, I'm, was I like many, many people, I would, I would say virtually all people, have a high intolerance to grains, legumes, and, and dairy. And at that time, I really wasn't consuming dairy because of the vegan story. But what, it, what I discovered was that these foods, these agriculture you know, derived foods that are relatively new to our, our species were causing a whole heck of a lot of problems for me. If, if most folks are familiar with a condition called celiac, which is a gluten reactivity that causes an autoimmune reaction and causes a lot of damage to the, to the gastrointestinal lining. Uh, there's a whole bunch of GI problems, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, that are all very, very sim- similar in etiology. And what we've found is when folks adopt this paleo diet where they're eating lean meats, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, good fats, uh, they, they, these GI problems go away and a whole host of other kind of autoimmune or systemic inflammatory problems go away. But it, it was, uh, I was, I was in very rough shape. I was down to about 140 pounds and not, not because I was calorie restricting. I was trying to eat about 4,000 calories a day when I, when I was vegan, but my gastrointestinal lining was so damaged. I literally just could not absorb nutrients. My, my uh, fingernails had huge ridges and cracks in them because I, I wasn't absorbing nutrients at all. You must have been scared because here you are, you're a power lifter and this strange thing is happening to you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was very, I, I just didn't think that I was going to live that long. I mean, I was in my, my mid to late 20s and I really didn't think I was going to live to see my early 30s because of the types of problems that I had going on. And then when we when we finally figured out what all of this stuff was being caused by, you know, mainly the, the grains and legumes, and I shifted to this paleo way of eating, I, I immediately, I mean, everything that I had going wrong just kind of righted itself literally almost overnight. And then, uh, you know, this is now almost 15 years later, and I'm, I'm 40 years old now, and I run less than 10% body fat. I have great performance, uh, really good cognition. Uh, when When I had my biomarkers of aging and, and health and wellness checked by our, our life insurance company recently. Uh, they, they put my biological age at about like 20, 26 to 28 years old. I think I'm um, coming over to your gym. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you I'm know, they, they gave me the, they, they gave me the, the least expensive life insurance policy that they could possibly give a 40 year old man. Like my, my cholesterol was great. The markers of systemic inflammation were great. We did a more extensive panel than what they normally do for most folks because I, I, I asked them if, if we could look into this stuff because I've been eating this way for about 15 years and I'm, I'm trying to talk these folks into offering uh, kind of a special package for people that are eating this way. You know, if they can demonstrate that they have blood lipids that look like this and, and body composition that looks like this, then they, they should pay less for for health and life insurance. I think that's fantastic. On page 96 of your book, you say you only need to be exposed to gluten once every 15 days to keep the gut damaged. Can you explain why that's so and where you got that number? Well, and you know, that's probably even uh, uh, more, far more lenient than than what it it really is. This, This is just basic uh, histology and, and immunological research looking at, at folks' uh, gastrointestinal lining, um, you know, either with gluten exposure or without gluten exposure, and gluten being a protein that's found in wheat, rye, oats, barley, millet. Unfortunately, it's just in everything. It's in beer and soy sauce and all kinds of food additives and whatnot. And the, the best analogy that I could give here is, is if folks think about gluten the way that uh, it, it causes damage to the intestinal lining of, of virtually any type of critter that you, you feed it. And, and uh, all grains contain proteins that cause problems for the digestive tract of the critters eating them. Uh, if, it, you know, in nature, things either come with thorns or horns or poison or teeth or something to protect themselves. And for plants, they have biologically active compounds that, that cause problems when, when other critters try to eat them. Fruits are kind of an exception in that, you know, an apple or an orange, that organism is using a biological strategy of 
give a little, get a little. The, the, you know, that apple tree will donate some energy into producing an apple so that a critter eats the apple, consumes the seeds, drops the seeds off in a warm, fertilized package, and then you get another apple tree down the road. But the interesting thing is the apple seeds themselves contain cyanide and, and uh, chemicals in them that are similar to what are found in grains that prevent them from being digested, prevent them from being broken down. But what we have done is we've, we've domesticated grains and we've made them a, a staple of our nutrition. And so what's happening is we're consuming uh, a food stuff that contains chemicals that cause damage to our, our gastrointestinal lining. And the, the best analogy I guess I could think of is if you think about uh, poison oak or poison ivy, this is a, a long uh, biologically reactive fat that's found in these plants and it gets into our skin and for certain people it causes a very wicked reaction that, that manifests in a rash. And once you get that rash, it takes you about two weeks to clear the rash and so if you think about gluten the same way that you would, would consider uh, poison oak or poison ivy, then that's, that's kind of the analogy. I interviewed Dr. William Davis a few months ago, the author mm-hmm. of Wheat Belly, and it was astounding to find out that almost all grains in the United States have been genetically modified. It's quite shocking that the people in France and in other parts of the world don't have the exact level of diseases that we do here until they buy the similar types of wheat or grow similar types of wheat. But gluten is in far more than just wheat. It's in all these things that you're mentioning. I have a quick question for you about the legumes because that's pretty shocking. There's a mystery there, which is in hunter and gather societies, why are legumes considered dangerous to us now? Uh, well, the, you know, it's it's still more so than not a, a novel food. I mean, it wasn't a, a staple food in general, and and even it, you know, the uh, the collection of uh, acorns is a, a good example. They required a, an enormous amount of processing to make them edible. They had to be boiled and blanched to remove the tannins that were, were inside the acorns. And this is kind of a similar story with regards to the uh, uh, legumes, you know, like the various kinds of beans. And if you notice, folks don't eat beans raw. They, they get sprouted and then cooked. And all of this processing is, is something that goes into making them more, more digestible. Occasionally, uh, you, you'll have a situation that, uh, like what happened at a British hospital. There's a, a great piece in the British Medical Journal that talks about a hospital that basically was given dysentery because they had a healthy eating day and uh, everybody ate a bunch of red beans that were uh, improperly cooked and they didn't get food poisoning. They didn't cook the beans long enough to reduce the, the, this chemical called lectin. Uh, they, they didn't reduce the lectin content in the, the uh, red beans sufficiently and everybody got sick from it. And, and so you, you can make them more digestible and more, more palatable by cooking and sprouting and whatnot. But I, I would argue that, you know, maybe you should just have fruits or vegetables or yams or sweet potatoes instead of those foods, and you might end up being healthier. Let's talk a little bit about the lectins. It seems to be a very, very big topic now in the area of health and wellness particularly in the paleo area. And I think you should explain it to us and explain it to the audience, please. Well, it, the lectins are just one class of a, a large variety of, of chemicals that plants produce and it, it, that uh, we, we produce lectins also, but that are made that uh, are, are part of the immunology of the plant. It re- you know, when you recognize self from non-self, uh, it, lectins are important in that regard. But like I mentioned just a little bit ago, plants produce a wide variety of chemicals in an effort to protect themselves from critters eating them. And, and lectins are a class of those chemicals. They are not the whole story. There's all kinds of other uh, chemicals like globulins and, and uh, different protein uh, uh, fractions that are, are, we're discovering are maybe even more important than the lectins are. And, and so if people just think about this in a broad term of just that, that these, uh, you know, different plant constituents may have chemicals that are, are unhealthy for us, then that, that's kind of a, an easier way to, to think about all this. And uh, uh, the lectins are, are one part of the picture, but there's a whole bunch of other, other things to consider. 
Let's talk a little bit about fat confusion because you and I have been living under the spell, maybe not you and I, but others have been living under the spell, at least for a time, that if you eat fat, you get fat. It's a very, very confusing message, and it's still ingested by people. And people are walking around convinced that they can't eat fat, they can't eat butter, coconut oil will kill you, it's bad for you, it'll give you a heart attack. There's all this stuff that we're telling ourselves. Talk a little bit about Ansel Keys and the McGovern Commission. You know, it's it's really interesting when you look into medical history uh, from the 1830s, 1820s, all the way up until about the 1960s, if you presented to a primary care physician as overweight or obese, that physician would prescribe to you a low-carbohydrate diet. They would say, avoid bread and beer and potatoes and eat more meat and, and veggies and butter and cream and stuff like that. And, you know, people are horrified. Oh, that sounds like Atkins. And, you know, there's all this hand-wringing. But it, it was incredibly effective. And if you understand the biochemistry of, of you know, and the, the endocrinology of, of what our food produces in our body, it, it makes complete sense. And then somewhere along the line, you know, late 1940s, early 1950s, there was this guy, Ansel Keys, who was a researcher, and uh, uh, he, he was kind of pro-vegetarian, and he came up with this uh, uh, idea that was uh, basically that fat, and particularly saturated fat, was the, the cause of cardiovascular disease and, and obesity. And, and he used some fairly cherry-picked data. Uh, it's called the, the Seven uh, Countries uh, Study, which basically looked, created a graph that made this argument that the more fat a, a country ate, the, the fatter they were and the more cardiovascular disease they had. And the, the chart that he produced um, made a really beautiful linear relationship. But the interesting thing is that there were actually 22 countries worth of data. And when you included all of the data, you had places like Greece that had exceptionally high fat intake, but virtually no cardiovascular disease. You had other places, I think like uh, uh, Ukraine, that had low fat intake, but very, very high cardiovascular disease. And, and so the, the take-home from that was that fat really wasn't a factor in cardiovascular disease. But, it, you know, for whatever reason, because of the political climate at that time, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of different factors that went into it, but we really whole hog adopted this idea that, that fat was the causative factor in cardiovascular disease and then we tried to demonize fat with regards to cancer and, you know, autoimmune disease and on and on and on. And, and we've spent billions and billions of dollars trying to, to implicate fat, particularly saturated fat, in, in you know, cardiovascular disease and, and cancer. And we just can't do it because there's not really a relationship there. We have a much better relationship between carbohydrate intake, particularly refined carbohydrates, and diabetes and obesity and various types of cancers and whatnot. But it, 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 it's interesting. This information was pretty well understood on kind of an empirical observational level for almost 200 years, you know, at, at, that carbohydrate intake was probably not a good thing for somebody who was obese. And then we shifted gears. And when we shifted gears, we've, we've become fatter and thicker than we ever have in our history. And, and there's a lot of, to me, interesting political stuff associated with this. In the early 1970s, the United States government got very tied into intensification of our, our food system. And so they started pumping money into subsidizing grains that were then fed to uh, cattle to, to make them fatter and, and larger and increase production. Up until the early 1970s, all of the meat in, our, our, in the United States was, for the most part, grass-fed. We weren't. Uh, growing and harvesting corn to then feed to animals and, and that whole system. Interestingly, like if you, if you're into politics at all and you're conservative at all, it's kind of interesting because it's a, the, the whole thing is uh, uh, propped up by subsidies. The, the whole, our, our whole food supply in the United States would look very, very different if we were to remove farm subsidies. It, it would look like grass fed food production and decentralized production and, uh, uh, would, by and large, be be less expensive when you get the total cost of 
you know, taxation and, and uh, uh, ecological damage and all that sort of stuff. But it, there's a lot of factors that go into the, the, you know, our current food story. Indeed. I was in Sprouts yesterday buying grass-fed beef, and the butcher, as I was asking the distinction between the different types of beef that they had, because it was kind of confusing, he said, let me say it to you like this. All of the, quote, organic grass-fed beef here in Whole Foods and other places are purchased in Uruguay and brought here. He goes, and that's a fact. The non-organic type of meat is from here because it's too expensive for grass-fed meat to be grown here or whatever. So they're getting it all from Uruguay. I was in shock. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that shocking? It, it, it's oh. not surprising. Oh, my and, God. And, uh, you, you, we were in, my wife and I have traveled to Nicaragua a couple of times, and when we were uh, traveling with one of the guys that lived there, uh, we were talking about how great the meat was there because all of it's grass-fed, and, you know, it's reasonably inexpensive, and they tend to grow things in kind of a decentralized manner and whatnot, which is ecologically not not nearly as impactful as, as the way that we uh, uh, tend to do things. And and so the guy had lived in the United States for a time, and he said, "Oh, that's right. Like they they feed the the cattle corn." And and we were like, "Yeah." And then he was kind of thinking about it. And he's like, "Yeah, that would bankrupt our our country." <laughs> I was like, "Well, it's it's uh, kind of driving our country toward that direction, you know." And it, it's a it's a very interesting story. And, and it's not healthy for us. It's not healthy for the animals. It's not healthy for the environment. And uh, it, it's this story of permaculture and grass-fed meat and whatnot, uh, it's historically the only people concerned about sustainability have typically been vegetarians. And that's been an interesting side of this paleo story is that people are very, very concerned about sustainability and permaculture and, and environmental impact and kind of a a full accounting on the um, the economics of how we produce our food, but it's not from a vegetarian perspective. You know, people are still eating critters, and and uh, uh, it, it's just interesting to me. However, that that a major rallying point of this ancestral health Paleolithic scene is this this very powerful focus on food production and sustainability and whatnot. The other thing is the way the animals are treated in the whole agribusiness, that animals have to mercilessly suffer in order to be converted to food. And I've interviewed somebody in the United Kingdom who is stewarding new concepts with the United Kingdom to help in the way that the animals are raised and treated before slaughter. Right. And there's something to be said about do you really want to be eating something that suffered so unmercilessly for so long before it was even killed to make it part of your diet? So there's people like me who have issues with that. I've been a vegetarian for 25 years on occasion eating meat. And I have to tell you something that I've gone back to meat more regularly and I'm making it part of my diet. I'm feeling better, but it's new. You know, it's really, really new. And I want to say something to the vegetarians out there. When I was a tournament tennis player, I was not a vegetarian. You know, when I was lifting weights and playing tournaments, I was in the best shape of my life. And my whole continence changed when I stopped eating meat. And a lot of that, I have to say, was also part of me taking in the information that was out there that meat will cause cancer, meat is terrible for you, don't have too much meat, you'll get a heart attack. I mean, I believed all that years ago. I mean, many years ago. And so I started to modify my diet. We didn't know 25 years ago or 20 years ago that whole grains are producing what they're producing and how they influence the gut and the whole body and how they turn to sugar immediately and impact your insulin and all this horrible stuff that now is really coming to light. So it's like so much of what we were told, it's all turned around, the whole thing. Right. It's stunning how much is 100% wrong. <laughs> It's, I'm sure the public is very confused, not knowing who to trust or who to listen to. You know, I'm sure you deal with that all the time, right? Yeah. And, you know, for me, that that's I, I take a very kind of libertarian approach to the whole thing. And I really encourage people to take responsibility for their own health. And, and that's why, you know, I, I suggest that people, if they're going to get in and try this paleo thing, do it for 30 days. Uh see how you look, feel, and perform, track biomarkers of health and disease, like get some blood work done before, 
do it for 30 days, do some blood work afterwards. <clears throat> and you shouldn't see anything go south. If what we, if what I'm recommending is good, then your good cholesterol goes up, your bad cholesterol goes down, triglycerides improve, your sleep improves, you, you, uh, your, your back end looks, looks better in your favorite pair of jeans. I mean, there, there should not be a downside to this. And, uh, if there is, then do something else. That's where I'm, I'm very non-religious about this. And I encourage people to do, do vegan for three months, do American Dietetics Association recommended diet for three months, and then try paleo for three months. Do, do the paleo last so that <laughs> you get the, the full kind of uh, healing restorative effect. But uh, I am completely confident in the, the results because of seeing this in, in, you know, just tens of thousands, I guess now, you know, hundreds of thousands of people doing this. Like it, it's about as consistent as the sun coming up and, and going down. And, and something that I've been talking about more and more is uh, this interesting economic side of, of all of this. If, if you look at technology, consistently technology gets better and less expensive, better and less expensive. There's this, this thing in computing called Moore's Law, which basically in the 1960s, the computer geeks figured out that every about every 18 months, the processing speed of a computer chip got about twice as fast and half as expensive. And we've seen that consistently happen for, you know, over 40 years. And uh, in the 1980s, I believe, one gigabyte of processing power would have cost over a million dollars. Today, a gigabyte of processing power costs less than 10 cents. If you allow market forces and technology to come to bear on a problem, it gets cheaper and better, cheaper and better, cheaper and better. Medicine, by contrast, has a third-party payer system. And it does not allow the real technology to bring to bear. We keep telling people high carb, low fat, statins, and all the rest of this. And we are we are on par. Like if we continue on the course that we are on, by 2030, we will be spending in the United States 300% of our gross domestic product on Medicare and Medicaid alone. Like, and that that should cause people to like choke on their Cheerios or something, you know, I mean, that, that is completely unsustainable. The, just the, the two entities, Medi- Medicare and Medicaid alone, will bankrupt what, what we're doing in the United States. And that is all an outgrowth of uh, uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes-related issues. We, we do have a demographic change occurring in which our, our population is on average aging, but that only accounts for about 5 to 6% of the, the projected increasing cost. The bulk of the increasing costs are because we are doing things wrong. If we were applying the right technology to the way that we handle medicine, we wouldn't really have type 2 diabetes. We wouldn't really have cardiovascular disease. The reason why these things are occurring is because we're telling people to eat the wrong things and, and kind of live in the wrong way. Now, we, you know, our, our medical professionals do tell us to get out and exercise and do this stuff, but inevitably, you know, their, their dietary solution is a high-carb, low-fat, you know, a uh, uh, grain-based diet, which we, if that was working, then we would see less cardiovascular disease, not more. And and we're just simply not seeing that. I think it's really astute of you to have brought up Moore's Law. I interviewed George Gilder two years ago. Oh, okay. Who speaks a lot about Moore's Law when it comes to computing and technology and business and economics. Very astute of you to bring it up. I'm wondering how you see Moore's Law applying to the food supply costs, which are going up, up, and up. Well, you know, it, it, it again, on food supply, we, we have a subsidized model currently, you know, and, and so... Explain you know, it. Explain that part of the subsidy. What do you mean by the subsidy? We, we take tax money from our populace, the government does, then the government redistributes that money to food producers, you know, uh, uh, dairy farmers, corn farmers, you know, and, and uh, uh, basically the folks producing our food. And it, there's a great movie that, you know, if folks don't want to read about this stuff, which is, it, it can be incredibly boring to read about. I'm, I'm, my second book is actually looking at all this food politics stuff. But there's a great movie called King Corn where these, these kids get in and they, they raise a bushel of corn. And they look at what all goes into the production of that bushel of corn, 
And the only reason why they make money off of that corn and the only reason why corn producers make money off of the production of corn is because of government subsidies. It is a completely insulated market. And so we, we pump money into that scene to produce cheap food that then we feed to our populace, which makes us sick. You know, so high fructose corn syrup, uh, uh, you know, corn chips, uh, cheap, cheap denuded bread products and stuff like that. All of that looks cheap on the front end, but then on the back end, we're paying for it in, in you know, the, the medical costs and, and societal costs, but then also in the real cost that we're, we're adding a tax redistribution of, of money that goes from us, the populace, into the food producers. And, and the, in, kind of an interesting thing with that, if you are, a, say, like a grass-fed meat producer, you're not eligible for these subsidies. If you are an organic uh, fruit producer, for the most part, you are not eligible for these subsidies. These subsidies are very specific to kind of the, the grain, legume, dairy scene, you know, like soybeans and, and corn and wheat and, and whatnot. So that that's kind of the uh, the part with our, our food production. And, you know, I've, I've got all kinds of thinkings, too, about our, our uh, uh, you know, military industrial complex, which that's a whole, whole other story, but it's (laughs) folks are kind of like, you know, thinking, well, I don't know about this. I don't know if this makes sense. If you look at Lasix, you know, the, the laser eye surgery, Lasix follows a perfect Moore's law distribution, which is that it has gotten shockingly less expensive as time has gone on. You have competition in the marketplace, you have improving technology People are able to share information about who is a good versus a, a not-so-good surgeon. And so you, when you track the real costs of LASIK surgery over time, it, it's literally about eight times cheaper now than what it was in, in the year 2000, you know, 99, 2000. And that, that's because it's open to the market. But, uh, you know, our medical costs are, are increasing because it's a third-party payer system more and more and more. You have a consumer who then goes to a, a uh, you know, provider and then somebody else pays for that stuff. And when we're not really aware of the real cost of our health care, we, we consume more than what we normally would. And so I, I think that that's a big part of, of that scene. And then the way that we've intensified our food production, that is also a, a part of, of, you know, this weird story of, of our food production complex in, in which we, are subsidizing the food production on the one hand to make cheap food that then generally produces really poor health outcomes, which then we need to subsidize that stuff. And uh, I would just argue that maybe we shouldn't subsidize our food. We should have a little bit more market forces on that. And if if you want to eat sugar, then that's fine, but we should pay the real cost for sugar. And if you're sick, maybe you should pay a little bit more for your health care. It's also a good question probably to ask, Looking at the way food is grown and subsidized, what industries are truly being fed? <laughs> because it's about what industries are being fed, not necessarily what people are being fed and what health is about at that point, which I really am so glad you brought that up. And the whole thing about subsidies, I think, is going to be news for many of us. And I'm not a real big conspiracy guy. I mean, I, I, I think they're kind of kind of fun, but it, when you look at it's mostly looking at a whole system. And if you look into, say, like our, our pharmaceutical scene, the vast majority of the pharmaceuticals produced right now are to deal with complications that extend from our lifestyle problems. Cancer, diabetes, heart disease, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, all of these diseases have common etiology in the, this process of what we call systemic inflammation, which is kind of an overactive immune response and the body just literally running a little bit hotter and a little bit more aggressively than what it should. And if we fed and watered people differently, the the vast majority of the pharmaceuticals that are produced right now would be largely unnecessary. And, and, you know, that, that's, that's a ton of money. And, and, uh, uh, we, you know, nobody is all that excited about curing, uh, dengue fever in Central America. Nobody's all that excited about finding different ways of treating malaria in Sub-Saharan Africa. And these things could, you know, consume a lot of life, but there, there's not a lot of money to be made off of it. The vast majority of the money that's being made off of pharmaceuticals are in, you know, like Viagra and, and statins and, and stuff like that. They're largely lifestyle drugs that if we 
exercised a little more and we got a little more sleep and we ate a little bit differently, those things would largely be unnecessary. I have a question about your section on 206 in the organic area, because when I read this part, I want you to have a shot to elongate what you wrote here, because some of it, I think, for me is... Uh, confusing. Your message, some of this part of it was confusing for me, where you talk about the whole push for organic. And you say, organic is a nice concept, but for me, it lacks a pragmatic perspective. And then, you know, you give an example, like some of the natural pesticides are more toxic than synthetics. Plutonium is natural, but it's not good for you. You kind of explain, you give the context for it, but talk about the practicality of why you're saying that. There's a couple of layers to it. So, you know, if we're talking about meat production, if it's organic, it doesn't necessarily mean it's grass-fed. And and so you could buy organic meat that has been fed organic grains, and I don't think that that's really doing anybody much good at all. So that that's just kind of a piece of that. You know what? I think many of the consumers, though, like me, prior to reading this and even getting more refined with it, I would have assumed, wrongfully, that organic meant grass-fed, but you're right, it doesn't. It does not, no, no. And it's kind of a, a tricky way for the producers to to really make a lot of money because, you you know, the organic grains are really not all that much more expensive than the conventional grains, but they produce bigger, heavier animals, and you can sell them for a premium because they're bigger and heavier, and you can slap this organic label on them. Uh, one of the, the challenges of grass-feeding uh, cattle specifically is that they are lighter. So the producer doesn't make quite as much money just off the fact that the scale weight is less. But, you know, they this is also kind of a telling feature. We feed cattle grains to make them fat. We don't feed them corn oil. Uh, we, we, you know, I mean, we, we feed them carbohydrates to, to put weight on them. So, you know, folks should contemplate that a little bit. And then some of my, my issues with organic is just that I don't think people... So on the one hand, I'm talking about sustainability and decentralized production and all that. Here's an interesting feature of organics. So I can't take fertilizer that was made from natural gas and heat and water being being combined together and making uh, ammonia synthetically in a, a laboratory, which is very, very efficient. It's very clean. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, one of the miracles, really, of, of modern uh, chemistry. I can't use that because it's, quote, synthetic. But what I can use is fish that was caught via trawler fishing. And then I can take this fish that, in my opinion, probably should go towards human food consumption or, you know, some it, it, humans, animals, something. But I can take trawler-caught fish take that fish, grind it up into meal, and put it in my organic food production, and that works. But then when you look at the total carbon footprint of the trawler-caught fish versus simply taking super inexpensive natural gas, some heat, and some water, and producing ammonia, that wins by orders of magnitude on the, the, the comparison of how much energy are we putting into one fertilizer versus the other. And so this is where I think organic is great in concept, but we also need some market-based economics looking at some of the recommendations. Some of the naturally occurring fertilizers or or, uh, pesticides are orders of magnitude more toxic than the the, uh, synthetic uh, uh, pesticides are. But because they are naturally occurring, then we assume them to be better, but that's simply not the case. And so this is... And this is one of these problems of, you know, science is complex enough that it takes a little bit of work to educate the populace about this. If we hear that some, you know, all the time I I will see people, you know, in farmer's markets or in like Whole Foods markets and stuff like that, they'll say, this doesn't contain chemicals. And, And I, as a chemist, I say, well, in this universe, we have matter and energy. And if it's matter, then it's made of chemicals. So what are you trying to say here? And what they're trying to say is it doesn't contain synthetic chemicals, which, okay, I, I kind of get that, but just because it's synthetic doesn't mean that it is inherently more toxic than naturally occurring substances. I think you're right. These distinctions, it's so crazy-making. When I go to Whole Foods to get chicken, let's say you go and you buy a cooked chicken, right? 
Right. They say, okay, there's the organic one for almost $13 or $14, whatever it is, $12 or $13. And then there's the one for $8 that's not organic, but I can't figure out what it ate. You know what I'm saying? It's so crazy making as a consumer. That part is not fun anymore because what did this thing eat is the bottom line. And how was it treated? What did it eat? Okay, I make the decision. But right. for the most part, these things are confusing. I think you're right about that. That's why I wanted you to clarify it. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, one, one, one caveat I would throw in with that is, is that I have these two corollaries. I, I call them hippie excuse for failure, number one and two. Oh, yeah. Say that. I like that. Say it. Yeah. And, and so hippie excuse for failure, number one, is I, I can't find organic meat or grass-fed meat, and so I'll eat a bagel, which, no, that, that's, that's not the story. Like, if, you, if you're eating out and uh, they don't have grass-fed meat on the menu, does that mean that you, you uh, default to a plate of pasta? No, we, we eat conventionally grown meat and chicken and all the rest of that and just try to make the best decisions that we can and then, the, you know, hit the excuse for failure number two, I can't find organic produce, so I'll eat a bagel, you know. And it, what I find is that folks will overthink this. And so we've been talking about some pretty high-level stuff, you know, right. about like food production and, and whatnot. What if you're a, a family of, of, you know, three or four, you've got mom and dad or maybe only a mom or a dad and then two or three kids, uh, you want to eat healthier, where do you start? I, I don't think you worry too much about organic. You don't worry much about grass-fed. You just focus on, you know, good protein sources, fruits, vegetables, good fats from olive oil, maybe some coconut. And then somewhere down the road, you might give some thought about sustainability and permaculture and all the rest of that stuff. But what I find is that folks can jump into this and get way over their head on the details instead of just get healthy, get, you know, start feeling better, start looking better, and then we can worry. It, the sustainability piece for me is a layer of refinement that can be added on later and or if you have somebody that, as they are coming to this concept, they're very, very concerned about sustainability, and it's like, okay, oh, cool, we can we can address that. But it's a a layer of of distinction that I, I don't want to uh, blow people out of the water with. You know, just if, if get you, it done is the bottom line. Get it done. Yeah, if, if where you live, um, you know, a Costco and a a, uh, a Walmart Supercenter are the places where you can buy your your produce and your meat from, then that's where you go, and you don't worry about the grass fed element today. But maybe six months down the road, you've kind of got your feet under you, and you've figured this stuff out a little bit, and you say, "Hey, I've got some room in the garage. I'm going to buy a chest freezer, and then I'm going to go in on a half a cow with my next door neighbor, and it's going to be grass fed." And and so that's a that's a layer of refinement that's down great. the road. But I wouldn't worry about that stuff straight out of the gate. So I, I it's fun talking about this this higher level stuff, but I don't want to paint a picture that of uh unattainability an iconoclastic, unreachable thing. Right, exactly. Exactly. That's a good point. There's been articles coming out about pink slime and ammonia in meat. And so in the context of what you just said, how do people who may not be going organic, at least get good quality meat. What do you recommend for discerning that in the here and now? You know, if you can make a relationship with a local butcher, that's amazing. There's not many of them left. You know, there, there, there are simply not many of them left. But if you can, if you can make a good relationship with a, a local butcher, maybe even, uh, you know, like a Rayleigh's or a Bel Air or a Safeway or something like that, if you can make kind of a relationship with the the folks in the meat and seafood department start asking them questions about, you know, where, where are you guys sourcing this stuff? Can you get a little bit better quality? The, the today, almost any, um, you know, mainstream supermarket is going to have some grass fed, uh, options that didn't exist three years ago. And so over the course of time, we're kind of pushing that, that boundary a little bit, but, you know, I, I think it's, again, I'm very, uh, you know, libertarian kind of market-based, I like driving this from the, the numbers and from the consumers. And so if you are kind of a squeaky wheel about the food quality, the food quality will improve. And uh, I, I think it was actually, I'm trying to remember if it was Food Inc. or King Corn, which one of those, but, you know, they were talking about Walmart expanding its uh, 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 consumption of, of, you know, organics and looking at potentially offering 
grass-fed meat and stuff like that. And, and even though we demonize a lot of these large corporations, if we, as the consumers, say, hey, I want this instead of that, they will do it. They, they will respond to it. Even Whole Foods, which uh, we, we joke, we call it the vegan mothership because, you know, their, their doctrine is, is uh, pushing this vegan uh, agenda. But I, it was kind of a weird thing. I was in a, a Whole Foods in the meat department, and this woman behind the counter was like, hey, are you Rob Wolf? And I was like, yeah, I, I, I am. And she said, you know, this whole grass-fed meat section exists because of the paleo movement. Like five years ago, grass-fed didn't exist in Whole Foods. And, like, there's been massive pushback from headquarters. Uh, there's all kinds of, like, weird dissent within the stores because typically the people working in the stores are kind of, you know, pro-vegetarian. And then you've got the meat department over there as kind of a pariah in the store and whatnot. But but all of that stuff said, uh, the thing that is driving the, the presence of grass-fed meat in Whole Foods is the fact that people are asking for it. And so this is another piece, you know, and it doesn't happen overnight. I've been beating this drum for 15 years. And so it, it just simply doesn't change overnight, but you, you just kind of exert the pressure that you can, you can push on a, a situation and you will eventually get some change. I have two more questions and I so much appreciate your time and all the work that you've done to help us. As a biochemist and your work with Dr. Cordain, what is your take on whether corn is really meant to be ingested at all. Corn and corn products. Where are you at? And where's no, Dr. Cordain at? I, I think corn, modern corn, is in that, that similar story with modern wheat in that it's it's had a lot of tinkering occurred with it. And uh, I think if we look at, like, Mesoamerica, you know, uh, uh, you know, 1200 AD Mesoamerica, people were consuming corn and uh, they, they process it. You, you know, like all grains, it, it required some some degree of processing to minimize the the problematic constituents in it, like lectins and whatnot. And uh, I think that relative to a hunter-gatherer diet, people had problems with it. If you compare uh, the folks living in Peru relative to the, less, the rest of uh, Mesoamerica, like the, the Peruvians who ate a lot of like yams and sweet potatoes and stuff like that, I think that they generally were healthier than the corn-consuming folks. All that stuff said, um, I think that the genetic tinkering that we've done of late has made a, a thing that might have been tolerable or not too bad much, much worse. And that, that's, I think, a story that uh, Dr. Davis, the wheat belly author, has talked about a ton with with regards to wheat specifically. And it, it's interesting, if you go to Italy, uh, Italy's in the, the midst of a, a autoimmunity uh, celiac disease crisis. Uh, it, it, when I traveled through Italy, I'm, I'm very, very gluten intolerant. If I said sono celiaco, like I, I am celiac, I have celiac, uh, the, the, the whole, I ate uh, in places that were on par with like a, a you know, a, a subway sandwich shop in a, a gas station kind of kind of thing, and they had gluten free protocols there because people are so sick from gluten intolerance. Wow, so that's it, fascinating. It, it's really interesting. This is one of the funny things when people talk about well, the the Italians eat so much pasta, and it's like, have you actually been to Italy? <laughs> like, have you seen what's going on there? The the bulk of the autoimmune research around uh, uh, gluten intolerance is coming from Italy. Like when you look at the papers being published, it, it looks like a, a mafia, you, you know, a, a name list or something. It, it's all Stigmetti and Violetti, and you, you know, I mean, it, it's a, uh, it's all Italians doing this stuff because they're getting crushed by autoimmune disease. Do you think that we sent our wheat seeds or our genetically modified wheat over there and kind of infiltrated their original wheat production, or how could this have happened? <laughs> Completely. And I mean, this, this is just from, you know, the, the Luther Burbank um, crossbreeding. Like this is this is from 50 years ago. The, the, the seeds of this, you know, the, the G, what we would call GMO, where we're actually getting in and doing gene transfer specifically from, you know, like taking a, a botulinum, botulism toxin and putting it in the corn, for example. That's a, that's a genetically modified organism. That's a new story. But what I'm talking about is largely, and, and I believe what Dr. Davis talked about in Wheat Belly, that's largely just old school Luther Burbank uh, uh, selective breeding stuff, which in, as a biochemist, I would say that's still genetically modified, but, you know, people have their, their different degrees of buy-in on that. But the interesting thing is that the, 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 
selective breeding was for productivity and it was for different things like mouthfeel and, and whatnot, but it was never, there was never any thought given to are any of these changes that we are inducing problematic with health. It, it was always assumed that, that, you know, this is a healthy food and, and it'll remain healthy. And, and uh, I would argue that the unmodified old, you know, varieties of wheat, like einhorn wheat and stuff like that, uh, I, I think that they were still very problematic for people, but I think they were orders of magnitude less problematic than modern, like, semolina wheat or, or whatever these things are. Like, we've changed them a lot. And there's a lot of indication that, you know, like the, the botulinum toxin that is now a part and parcel of most uh, uh, corn, most of the corn that's being produced. It's pretty clear that it's causing gastrointestinal problems in people. And uh, it, it, it's interesting, you know, we... we uh, We've, we did a lot of this tinkering with food out of fear of, you know, like global starvation and, and Malthusian, you know, population bombs. So I think that there was some good intentionality there, but I think that we will need to circle our wagons back around and look at some of the, the potential health problems of these foods and then figure out, okay, how are we going to modify them further? If, if they're going to remain a significant part of the food supply, how are we going to modify them further so that they are less problematic on our health? Confusing for many people, how much protein do we need? A lot of people are confused about this. Of course, it connects to how much you're exercising, how much you weigh, your body fat, and all of that. Isn't there some type of a frame of reference that is clear? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, I would say no other than I, I think that human beings can survive on a wide variety of protein intakes. I would like to see protein intakes from like lean meats and seafood and fish and stuff like that. I don't think we do nearly as well uh, when we look at like beans and rice as a protein source. You know, it, 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 uh, it'll keep you alive. I don't, I don't see it causing people to thrive generally. And this is an interesting thing to observe, even out of the, the vegan, say like bodybuilder community. You know, there's, there's guys and gals who will be vegan and they will be bodybuilders. And what they end up using is a bunch of, brown rice protein concentrate and pea protein concentrate. And so what they're doing is they're taking this whole food and concentrating the protein down to level similar to what we would see out of meat and fish and stuff like that. And so to me, it's, it's kind of telling me if you really want to be really lean and strong and muscular, in general, you're not going to eat beans and rice. You're going to eat some sort of a concentrated protein source. And that that's just, there, there's no two ways around it. Otherwise, these vegan bodybuilders would eat beans and rice and, and not uh, concentrated, you know. My question is, I'm going to rephrase it, which is, is it like 50 grams a day of protein? Is it 100 grams of protein? Is there for women or men? Is it different how much, meaning in grams? You know, I, I think anywhere from like a half a gram to a gram and a half of protein per pound of body weight. And, the you know, the half a gram would be on the real low end and it's somebody that's got kind of a, a health and longevity bias, but they're not particularly active. They maybe do some walking and do some yoga and they don't have a lot of uh, uh, demanding exercise and they, they could probably cruise along fine with that. Uh, I will recommend higher levels of protein, particularly for people who are, are morbidly obese because they, most of these people have literally broken the neuroregulation of appetite, like their ability for their brain to know when they've eaten enough food is broken. And the main macronutrient that we can eat that can tell you, okay, I've eaten enough is protein. And so if I have somebody that's, you know, uh, I've had tons of, of clients in this situation where they are uh, significantly overweight and I, I really encourage them to try to eat one gram of protein per pound of body weight. And so I'll have a a woman who's five foot four, 265 pounds, and she's trying to eat 260 grams of protein a day. And she says, I can't eat all this. I can't eat all this. And I say, well, that's better than hearing, than me hearing you complain. I'm always hungry. And, and so that, that's, uh, that's the other refrain that I get from folks is that, you know, when they shift their diet around, they're missing their, their hookers and cocaine, for lack of a better term. You know, they, they want their, their sugar and their refined carbohydrates. And so what I tell them is that they need to eat in what I call a speed bump fashion, where once they eat their protein allotment, which for this five foot four, 265 pound woman 
once she eats 265 grams of protein from chicken and beef and pork and fish in a day, then she can have whatever, you know, bread, rice, pasta that she wants. But what happens is it's virtually impossible for her to eat all of that protein because she's just full. And then, but, but psychologically, she knows she could have that other stuff. But by the time she eats her protein requirement or, or just gets three quarters of the way to her protein requirement, she's done. And then she loses weight effortlessly. We get her down to a, a good, healthy body composition. And then we, we figure out how much latitude she might have with regards to refined carbohydrates and whether or not she's gluten intolerant and whatnot. So there's a really big spectrum on the, the uh, protein intake. And I, I think it just kind of depends on who you are and what you're trying to do, which isn't isn't a real uh, soundbite-worthy, you know, protein recommendation. It, it doesn't roll off the tongue in, in you know, like eight, eight words and, and uh, fits into a 30-second soundbite on a, on a commercial, but it's kind of a reality, uh, you know, if you want to give people accurate information. Do you get a chance to see Dr. Cordain much or to continue to talk with him? And are you going to collaborate on something, you think? You know, we, we talk via phone all the time, and then I, I live in Reno now, and then his family spends typically the whole month of July up in, in Lake Tahoe, and so we're going to get together and hang out with him for sure. We, we've always got stuff kind of brewing, but, uh, you, you know, he's he's uh, super busy, and I'm super busy, and we just try to, to get our, our, our cogs to link up whenever we, we can so that we can, you know, bounce some ideas off of each other. But he's an amazing guy. I, I owe him everything in this. Had he not done the work that he did, I would not be doing what I am doing now. That is for sure. It's obvious he's very proud of you and just delighted with what you're doing and your book and your work and where you're taking it, how you're opening up the field of awareness for all of us. And I I appreciate both of you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, no. Just uh, thank you for having me and a huge honor being on the show. Thanks, Rob. Ladies and gentlemen, you can pick up the book, The Paleo Solution, The Original Human Diet, at Rob Wolf's website at robrobbwolf.com, or you can go to amazon.com. And thank you so much. And if there's anything that you discover, your new book comes out, or there's something you'd like to discuss, you're always welcome back. Thank you so much, Rob. Thank you. And lots of love to Nikki and you for your new baby that's on the way very shortly. Congratulations. Thank you. We're pretty excited. It's going to be a game changer. <laughs> I'll bet the baby's going to be eating steak. <laughs> it, it, at least, yeah. Probably a lot of steak and sweet potato will be eaten by that kid, yeah. Congratulations. All the best. Bye, Kim. Bye now.